All right, so let me just make sure I catch my bearings here. Um, all right, so I want to begin with where we're at right now. And the setup to what is happening right now, uh, you can find uh, in this uh, part of uh, what opened up chapter five. So in chapter five, verse five, uh, you find that there was a dilemma, okay? That there was this book that was filled with, that was covered with seals and only a person who is worthy is able to open it. Well, in verse five, one of the elders comes in into the scene and declares this truth. He says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so as you read this, you're thinking that is great news because I want to know what is in this book. And I want to know God's will and God's plan. And this is for us just as much as it was in the first century for people going through that time. But I want to know, and there's one who is able to open. And that one who is able to open is Christ, who is the lamb that was slain, but also who is the lion of Judah and the root of David. So in everything that he is, everything that he has done, and everything that describes where he came from, Jesus is worthy. And so then the last sermon that Pastor Gabe preached to us, we looked at the first four seals. And the four seals, which pointed to four horsemen, was just a pouring out of all kinds of disaster into the world, judgments, all kinds of horrible things. Uh, if I was to you know, give to you a particular description, this is from Danny Aiken. He's a, a, a president of a seminary. But he described the four horsemen in this way. The four horsemen of the apocalypse have come forth leaving destruction, devastation, and death in their path. And so that's where we're at now as we're about to go into seal number five, is that these four horsemen who were coming into the world because of the lamb who was worthy, who opened the seals and released each one into the world and unleashed the judgments that came about through these seals, um, the world is a mess. But this is also a part of God's plan. So hold on to that, okay? Because we're going to look at seals five and six today. But before that, then I want to go into a little kind of a exorcist on how um, you know, I, I come to understand Revelation. Now, even as I'm talking about this, um, I want you guys to know that you know I went to Talbot School of Theology. So uh, what Talbot teaches, at least historically, is one that is not too different uh, from. Uh, masters. And so it was a school that was founded on dispensational premillennialism. Uh, as I was there, this was, you know, a good 10, 15 years ago. As I was there, there was definitely a progression towards a progressive dispensationalism, uh, whether, you know, Israel and the church, two separate things coming together, one people, two separate. That's the conversation that was taking place when I was there. But then since then, I think a lot of my thinking uh, has uh, changed some, and it's based on a few things that I would like to point out to you. But before we go into that, um, I want to, you know, kind of refresh your minds on something that Pastor you talked about in the beginning when he gave an overview of the different systems. So he mentioned different approaches to eschatology. So I want to review some of these things. So number one, and hopefully in a way that you can remember, okay? Number one, there's a preterist view. And, and the words that help you remember is that everything you read, it is all done. Okay, so every prophecy you read in Revelation, they're not really prophecies. They were actually fulfilled probably around the time of, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 8070. So if you're a preterist interpreter, you're, you're looking at all this, you're like, wait, all that's already happened. Okay, so that's one particular system. There is a histor historicist, which is could, could be described in this way, it's all lined up. And so how a historicist would interpret Revelation would be, you know, starting from the very first things that you see, 
it is parallel to the beginning of the church. It is the coming of Christ. And then through the histories and the stages and the phases since then, 2,000 years, what you find then is a progression of descriptions of what the church has gone through. So then you would see, you know, you go back, you know, the Reformation, you go back, you know, even that, you know, East and West dividing, you know, going back even more, you know, Constantine, like they would kind of describe all of this as kind of, oh, it's projecting and looking ahead to what the church will go through from the beginning of the church all the way to, you know, the end of it. So a historicist is where all these prophecies has the church history all lined up. Now, there's a futurist, and this is somebody that would see everything starting from chapter four, verse one in Revelation as all still being mostly ahead. So these are prophecies that are in front of us even now in the 21st century, most of them. These are prophecies that come before the second coming for sure. But as we're reading these things, if especially you're taking in to a pre-trib rapture, I mean, the rapture hasn't happened yet, right? So we're all here. So all of this from chapter four on, in the very classic futurist way is that the church is already gone, they're raptured. And so all of this is ahead of us. None of this has happened yet. And we long for the day when it does, okay? Uh, there's a fourth, which is an idealist, which means that everything that's described, they're all symbols, okay? So, you know, there's a lot of symbolic things. You could see this, you could kind of read it and go, oh, wow, a lot of pictures of the vision, I get it. But uh, an idealist would actually see these things and go, None of them are prophecies then. They're all symbols. And these symbols describe kind of a conflict between good and evil, righteousness and, you know, um, you know, just destitute, you know, depravity and so on and so forth. And none of these things actually point to real events that have or will happen. It's just this entire vision is just kind of using this platform as a means of talking about all these spiritual issues. So they're not real prophecies. They're not real historical events. They're all symbols. Okay, so these are the four classical ways of interpreting revelation. Whether it is preterist, all done, historicist, everything lines up in church history, futurist, all ahead, or idealist, all symbols. People have probably begun in one of those folds and kind of moved forward to put together something that made sense for them or to stick within the boundaries of a particular school. Well, what I'm going with, and there's such a wide spectrum of this, is what is called eclectic, which means it's a blending of many of these things so that it is all together. Okay, so this is where a spectrum may happen when you choose this route because, you know, maybe, you know, someone would interpret certain things as all, you know, has taken place in the past. Some would interpret more of it as happening more in the future. You see the blending that can happen, uh, but that's the approach I'm taking. I'm not taking a particular school and saying I'm all in on that. Uh, there's actually a good blend of what will happen in the future versus some of the things that may have happened already. And um, I'm basing it off of a particular angle that then has helped me to think this through. So this is where I want to take you guys next. Okay, oh, scary. Um, all right. Uh oh. Okay. All right, so if you will turn with me to Revelation chapter one. Uh, I'm going to read something for us. Uh, this is something that we have preached through uh, in this series, um, but this is also something that I think would give you guys a little bit more insight as to how I'm understanding um, the interpretive uh, process in Revelation. Okay. 
All right, so I'll go ahead and read for us. Uh, so this is Revelation chapter one. Uh, what you find here is pretty much the introduction to the book of Revelation, right? And so I'm going to read it, and I want you guys to kind of pay attention to, you know, who it is that the, the, the vision is being addressed to, and, uh, you know, maybe, you know, getting in the shoes of, if you were hearing this, uh, what might your expectations be? Okay, so starting from chapter, chapter one, verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. You already see some pictures and symbols here, right? So when we talk about seven spirits, this means the fullness, but it's not seven literal spirits, it's the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But going on, um, starting from verse five, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, this is written to Christians, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is an encouragement for those people receiving it. And every eye will see him, even though who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. That's part of the hope and the expectation he wants to extend to them. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. So all the way to the past, all the way to the present, all the way to the future. Let's go on verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he's talking about his own personal trials and hardships right now. He is in exile. This is probably in the 90s, right? He's the last living apostle. This is the last letter and last book of the canon. So he's the last guy and he's out in exile by himself. And uh, God is showing things to him. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. That's the order that the churches were addressed as well. So I want to end there. All right, so why do I want to take us to Revelation 1? The reason why is because when you see how the letter is addressed, there's a sense in which what is revealed to them should matter to some degree to them. Now, that doesn't mean that they would all literally experience everything to the fullest. Now, that might you know, put you in a very you know, preterist camp. But it's that whatever it is that is going to be revealed to John to be shared to the seven churches is meant to be something that the people in those seven churches would have some aspiration and desire and some encouragement and hope drawn from it. And so that's the reason why, you know, when I'm interpreting Revelation, I'm trying to think, okay, um, can it be completely futurist, which is then when all this happens, especially with a pre-trip, you know, a rapture, that none of this is relevant to any of the people at that time? Because it's not even relevant to us yet, because the rapture hasn't happened, if you were to go with that very classic approach. It would be hard for me to think that this revelation was given to these seven churches in the way that John shared about his trials and his tribulations, that he is walking in, knowing that the churches are also walking in tribulation. They were being persecuted and they were being uh, hunted down and, and separated and scattered, that it would be something irrelevant to them. That when we're going to look at the passage today, the fifth seal and the sixth seal, that the people at that time would be thinking, you know what? I could find hope in that. 
I can find solace and encouragement in that. It's not just something so far ahead that's not related to me. But that being said, oh man, um, there is this mention of millennium. So all these things does happen within a set of bookmarks, right? So you have the beginning, right? And the people that received in the first century, you have a progression of things that are gonna happen. I don't think it's all ahead of us, which would be purely futurist, but it's also where there's a millennium that is the, the, the marking point here of when Christ will reign, when he would have come back in his second coming. And then, you know, everything is going to happen from then on, from chapter 20 on. And so that's why I take an eclectic approach, because some things were relevant, certainly, even in what is revealed here, more than absolutely nothing is relevant. But then as you're looking ahead, it's also where this is a future hope for Christians, which is why when we look at the seven letters, we can find lessons for us, even though the seven churches were in the first century. Why? Because this is for all God's people. So in the same way, the revelation in its vision provides hope and encouragement, both for people like us today, 2000 years later, but then also provided guidance and teaching for the people of that time, because it's looking ahead in a tangible way, okay? All right, so I'm just gonna leave that there um, and kind of keep going here. Am I able to access the PowerPoint at all or? Okay. Okay, uh, let's see. I think it's that particular slide, isn't it? Yeah, it's that slide. Okay, you know what, I'm just gonna skip it then. All right, so um, in terms of the millennium then, um, you know, we are, pre-mill in terms of word teaching. Uh, that's pretty clear. I think there's a division or a difference between a dispensational pre-mill that has a pre-tribulation rapture uh, versus what is called a historic uh, pre-mill, which pretty much has the rapture and the second coming at the same time. So it's like you're going up to meet with Christ in the clouds. He's coming down to meet with you. And then the kingdom begins. So those would be the two ways in which it could be interpreted slightly differently. Um, and there's definitely nuances there as well. But where it's kind of um, uh, important to, to kind of um, be clear on is that if you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture completely, then when it speaks about all of these things happening, the church is already gone. So even, you know, Gabe, he's, he, he's talking about he holds to a mid-trip so that there's the three and a half years, like it speaks of the Daniel, and then the rapture happens and then three and a half years after that, right? Now, if you were historic, then you would believe that the church goes through the entire tribulation and then at the end they are raptured but then christ comes back it's the same event and then the kingdom begins so then that's where me and pastor hanley i think we lean a little bit more towards that towards historic and that it's one event that the hope that the church has of meeting with christ in the air is the same event as when christ comes back for his people and then the kingdom begins okay so i have something i want to show you there but um it's not a big deal um we're beginning also with the seals. We're gonna wrap that up. Uh, after the seals, there's gonna be trumpets. After the trumpets, there's bolts. And what the diagram shows uh, that I put up there is just that there's a linear view of this, there's a non-linear view of this. And then that provides a spectrum in terms of how you interpret it. Uh, if you go linear, then pretty much every single thing is sequential. If you go non-linear, there's different ways of approaching it. But uh, one of the ways in which uh, people have leaned towards is that you have your seven seals, but then the seventh seal is amplified by the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is amplified by the seven bowls. And so what you have there is kind of this spiraling of a lot of different things that are happening, are all devastations, are all judgments, are a lot of destruction, 
but that it's not sequentially 21 things, but it's, you know, kind of one series of seven things, and then the second series of seven things amplifies the first, the third series of seven things amplifies second, and then you find a thread of common events. Um, and uh, there's a you know definitely a way of viewing that, uh, that that's consistent. Um, I'm not too dogmatic on having it necessarily be that way in progression, but there is one thing that we'll find actually in the sixth seal when we get there that kind of makes me lean towards a, there's that there's a sense of progression that's connecting the three rather than it's all sequential 21 things in a row. Okay, when I say in a row, it's not necessarily the same amount of time, but 21 things you know, separated consecutively down the line. Okay, uh, there seems to be a, a final judgment, a final day of wrath, um, and that connects each of the three series of sevens to each other. There's not multiple final things. There's like one final thing. There's one day of judgment, one day of wrath, and Revelation kind of circles back to that day three separate times, okay? All right, so let's go ahead and, and jump into the, the text today. And um, let me go ahead and uh, share this quote with you and then uh, we'll transition in. So this is uh, a quote written by Alan Danny. He is a professor at Oklahoma Baptist University. He just said this as an encouragement then, uh, knowing all that I just said and all that maybe you've heard or will hear will may continue to be confusing. I like this quote because he brings it back to uh, what matters. He says, when studying Revelation and eschatology, it is all too easy to lose sight of the call of Christ in Revelation which is to live victoriously as overcomers of sin, the world, and the devil, and to remain faithful to him at all costs, because he will make all things right in the end. Whatever view one thinks best reflects the teaching of scripture, it must always be kept in mind that scripture always presents the doctrine of last things as a motivation for faithful living. This is what the first century churches would have received Revelation as. They're in the midst of persecution. They're in the midst of hardship. They're in the midst of scattering. They're in the midst of diaspora. They need hope. Their hope is Christ. What can they hear from Christ that will keep them going? The revelation written to the seven churches addressed that for those people, but then also carries in truth for us, and we all then all look ahead together. All right, so we're looking at two seals today, the fifth seal and the sixth seal. Let's go ahead and look at the fifth seal in chapter six, verses nine through 11. Uh, the passage is gonna be on your screen. Let me go ahead and read it for us. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So what are we talking about here? The first four seals, the four horsemen, it was a description of all kinds of judgment and devastation upon the earth. And that's what you see. And you're not personalizing all that much. You just see that, you know, the, the, the land has unleashed all of this destruction, but this is something that is part of God's plan. But this fifth seal shifts the focus. The people that are now being seen in this vision is not just kind of a blank canvas of the earth in the midst of receiving destruction. These are Christians. 
These are Christians. These are Christians who are martyrs. They were martyrs because of a life that they lived, a faith that they had, and a testimony that they gave through how they lived. So this is not a series of Christians who were accidentally killed because they're at the right place or the wrong place at the wrong time. These were Christians that because they were faithful to Christ, that the consequence of their faithfulness in their words and their actions is that they were killed for their faith. They were slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And that's such an important thing for us to appreciate. Because a lot of times we would go to battle with people on theology alone. But it's not just your knowledge. It's your witness. It's not just that you have the correct theology or that you have the correct gospel, but it's that you've chosen to live that out in full surrender so that in how you are expressed and received by others, they're like, wait, this guy, this girl believes in Jesus and is following him with their life. That bothers me says the world. That bothers me if you were a subject in the Roman Empire. That bothers me if you were a worshiper of pagan gods. That bothers me if you're somebody that is pursuing the treasures of this world and the fame and the status and all that this world has to offer. Who is this Christian that dares to live for Christ and actually live out his or her talk? Well, these are the Christian martyrs that John saw. When it speaks of under the altar, uh, when you see you know, this idea of altar, you always kind of think, well, this is the place where you meet with God. And that's true in this case as well. Whether in the altar where sacrifices you know, were offered to God in, in, in Jewish culture and religion, or just in the altar of offering your life as a sacrifice and a burnt offering to God, a good aroma to God, a Christian offering his or her life. An altar is a place where a believer in Jesus prays and seeks him out. An altar is where God meets with people, but then Christ is the mediator. So these Christian martyrs have found themselves under the protection of God because they have nothing else that would protect them. That these are martyrs in their death crying out to Jesus for what? You find this in verse 10. Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What were they crying out for? They were crying out for justice. Right? These Christians were murdered for their faith, not for their sin. These Christians were murdered because they stood up for Christ, not because they had sinned against others. They were enemies to the world not because they were actually people that did something wrong in God's eyes. You know, when you see martyrs, you find them everywhere in Revelation. You find them here in chapter 6. And who knows, many of these martyrs could have died as a result of the judgment that came upon the world in the four horsemen, right? But you find martyrs mentioned in chapter 7, martyrs mentioned in chapter 13, chapter 18, and chapter 20. The idea that followers of Jesus would be killed and persecuted simply for their faith, that's all over in Revelation. There's a church father who said this. Tertullian mentioned this about martyrdom. The blood of the martyrs is the seed 
of the church. And so death and sacrifice due to one's faith is actually what has built up historically the church. You find in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, this exhortation. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Is that right? No. Is that just? No. But is God in control? Yes. And do these Christian martyrs believe that? Yes. And so while they die for their faith, possibly unjustly, certainly untimely from a human point of view, they were not bitter towards God. They were not angry against God. What do they do? They turned to God and cried out to God. When you're in the midst of a trial in life, when you're possibly even suffering persecution as a collegian for what you believe, forget about how you live, simply for what you believe, you could be canceled today. It's not fair sometimes. It's not right. It's not just. But is God sovereign? Yes. So who do you cry out to? Well, these martyrs cried out to God. They had no one else to turn to but God. And so they turned to him with a loud voice. They cried out to God to stand up for him, for them. But what's God's response? He does a couple of things. One, he gives them a right robe. A white robe, more than just what you guys get baptized with in this church. Um, but a white robe is just simply a symbol of righteousness and purity. So God is affirming them, saying, you know what? You might have been killed in this world for something that the world has declared is wrong with you. But in my eyes, because Christ and his righteousness is on you, you are clean to me. You are right in my eyes. But then he tells them something else. So you have right standing before me because of Christ. But then he also tells them to rest for a little season, to wait. I don't think that's what people want to hear if you're thinking from our perspective, right? So God, you know, save us, rescue us. God says, wait. Why? Because more of you are going to be killed. There's a number of you that will be killed in my name that is part of my sovereign plan before everything ends. That doesn't seem like good news. Only if we believe that there is something wrong with suffering, something wrong with pain, something that just doesn't sit right with Christians having hardship. You know, I think we see this, our initial reaction actually reveals a lot of probably how we've been shaped by our culture. Our initial reaction, we see, wait, God is saying, be patient, hold on, you who have been killed unjustly, because more of you will suffer this particular consequence before my will is accomplished. And you're thinking, God, how is that fair? God, how are you good? On one hand, I get it. It makes sense that we feel that way. But on the other hand, it reminds us of how much God's ways are not our ways. And that for the Christian, death is never the end. The God-glorifying life might end up being one that on the earthly side 
is horrendous in terms of how it ends and the ups and downs of what happens. But that doesn't negate the fact that God is good, powerful, and uses his people in a way that brings glory to him. See, really, that the more suffering and the more hardship we go through in this life, and I'm saying this as somebody who has not gone through a ton of real suffering, but the more that we go through, the idea here in Revelation 6 is that the more God is using what is happening to us for his glory, and that ultimately his will, which is perfect and good, will be accomplished. So let's go on. The Christians have spoken. These martyrs who have been unjustly killed or you know, slain for their faith or possibly just in the midst as collateral damage when the four horsemen came. Let's look at the sixth seal then because we're not done after the fifth seal. Now we see the wrath of the Lamb. Starting in verse 12, John saw this. When he opened the sixth seal, I, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its bitter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? When Jesus, the worthy man, opens this seal, it also unleashes his judgments then to those that are rightfully deserving. And you notice here that this is not just targeting a segment of people maybe in terms of how we would separate people. Oh, it must be all the rich guys they're bad or all the people with power they're bad or all of the people in control that are bad. No, there's slaves in there too. There's all kinds of people. Bottom line, the judgment is unleashed on those who are the enemies of God. And it doesn't matter what social standing you have. It doesn't matter where you came from. All kinds of people, if they were opposed to the land, if they were opposed to God, then the Lamb unleashed wrath upon them. This is tremendous wrath. You see the mention of a great earthquake, which, by the way, is mentioned again in chapter 11 and 16, a really big earthquake. You see that every mountain and island were moved, all of it, everything reconfigured. And this is mentioned again in chapter 16. And you see that in verse 14, too, that even the heavens were being rolled up like a scroll. And only God could be described in being able to relate to the world in that way. That God who made everything could simply just bring it together and just tie it up and just put it away. These are way more severe judgments than the four has been brought. But this is the Lamb who is worthy to open the scrolls open a seal to the scroll, but also the land who is worthy to judge in ultimate ways. These judgments, this wrath poured out is so bad that all kinds of people are going to hide, but it's no hope. There is no comfort or consolation. They cannot hide even though they try to. And the key again is 
who they are. Are they enemies of God or are they friends of God? Is their identity opposing Christ and the Lamb or is their identity in Christ? You know, if you're a Christian at that time, if you're a Christian now, you, you can think of a passage that should be familiar to you and kind of think, you know what? This is the opposite of the hope that you have in Christ. When you see this devastation and this wrath, there is something about when you're in Christ that turns everything upside down. I remind of Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 to 29, where the Apostle Paul says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, who then will not suffer this wrath. There's a difference between your relationship with God that then sets you apart in even this story. Because if you find yourself in Christ, the Lamb avenges you. The Lamb is there to pour wrath on his enemies and yours. In verse 17, you see this phrase, the great day of his wrath is come. And this then just seems to be so final that it is part of why I've taken to interpret some of what is said in Revelation as being progressive and cyclical in that there's one great day of his wrath, not multiple ones. Um, the way that this is set up to be, everything is so big in scale, so large, whether it's natural disasters, whether it's you know any kind of judgment, that this is the final judgment. But I mean, certainly, you know, there's different ways of viewing that as well. And so the wrath of the Lamb will be what not only would justify and rescue his people who are crying out to him and providing divine justice for those martyrs, but then also it reveals that in comparison to anything that the world has, that the Lamb is much more powerful, that the Lamb is greater than any emperor, that the Lamb is greater than any politician, anyone in authority, anyone that is directly standing and opposed to God, any government, any institution, that ultimately when the lamb brings wrath, it is a final type of wrath. And that God does care about justice and God does care about punishing evil. And that that's not mutually exclusive from his people being persecuted, being killed, suffering, crying out. That's the world that we live in. But yet that's the hope that the first century Christians will, could look forward to as well as we continue to look forward to today. So I'm gonna ask you guys to consider these three things from today's passage of the fifth and sixth seals. Number one, God calls his people to pray, especially when you've been unjustly treated, especially when things are not fair in life and you're being persecuted, whether in the arena of ideas or in the marketplace where being a Christian is not exactly the most welcome thing. God calls his people in all these circumstances to pray. Why? Because 
He's the one that is sovereign, that is powerful, and that is good. Only God can do something about a world and a situation that we have no control over. And that's just how it is all the time, in every season, that if God is everything that we believe the Bible says he is, we need to pray. But how often do we think of doing that first? How often do we not just pray, but we cry out loud for God to help? That our cry to God is reciprocal to how difficult a trial is in our lives. I don't know that we always depend on him so much. A lot of times our prayers are a whimper. And that's okay if where you're at is just a place of weakness. All you can do is whimper. But when I say that our prayers are a whimper, it's more like, you know what? We want to handle things on our own. And either God doesn't care or, you know, we don't need him or we're just not trusting in him. And we don't cry out to him the way that these martyrs cried out to God to avenge them to do right for them, to bring about justice. We need to pray because God calls his saints to pray. Secondly, God calls his people to suffering. It's so easy to look at each other's lives and wonder, why is that person's life better than mine in these ways? Why is my life more difficult than others in these ways? Now, this is not a call to heartlessness and a lack of compassion to your brother and sister, especially if they're going through hardships. Oh yeah, yeah, don't compare yourself to me or you know, you're fine, you know, just trust God. It's, it's not like that where you don't bear each other's burdens. But it's also one in which we have to acknowledge that in this life where sin is still something that we as Christians are fighting and certainly the world is constantly embracing, especially when it is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, Satan. That the consequence of sin is suffering. If there's no sin, there's no suffering. The reason why there's suffering is because we live in a world of sin. So we need to walk with each other in the midst of suffering and encourage each other in suffering and not let suffering be something that divides us by driving a wedge in maybe the haves and the have-nots. Or suffering being something that makes us question the goodness of God. Because what did the Lamb say? All of you who have been killed for your faith because of the word and the witness of Christ in your lives, wait a little longer. More of you will die. That does not sound like a feel-good kind of promise. But the trust then is all in God. And the suffering, we believe, in the same way that the death of Christ was foreordained and foreplanned by God to bring about the salvation of his people, in Christ, that God uses suffering for his glory and that he will make all things right in his time. So God causes people to suffering and we shouldn't be surprised when it happens and we shouldn't judge one another because of suffering or in spite of suffering. It has nothing to do with God's favor on us, whether we go through suffering. The reason why we suffer is because there's sin in this world. And once we hold on to that and just keep it simple, then we can trust God and we can pray and we can cry out to him. Last, God calls his people to wait. Oh, that's the worst. I hate waiting. I hate waiting for anything. But God calls his people to wait, even in the midst of death and in the midst of justice delayed. He says, wait, 
Today is one of those days where regardless of how you see a particular situation, there was some major headlines today, in which case people were wondering, well, was this just or not? Should we, how should we view this world and what is right and what is wrong and whether people get what they deserve? How long can we wait? Well, it's not mutually exclusive from God wants what is right and he will bring about ultimate justice in his perfect timing. But as Christians, we need to be willing to be long-suffering and to wait. This has to do with the open doors in your life. It has to do with the relationships that you might desire. It has to do with the different steps that you want to see happen in your life. You have to wait. You have to wait and be willing to do so joyfully. Even if it means you get persecuted along the way, even if it means that life is more difficult. He causes people to wait because we live in a world of suffering. And he calls us then to pray because all these ways actually bring us nearer to him. Are you under the altar in your life circumstances as you trust everything to God? Are you near him? Are you under his protection? Today we sang some pretty good songs. Um, and I want to just end with one more, the lyric uh, that really this particular chapter just points to. Um, but the, the final verse from the song, It Is Well, this is written by Horatio Stafford. Uh, it sounds a lot like kind of what the lamb will do and is calling his people to wait for his perfect fulfillment in time. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. This is later. But we wait. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. The idea is that until that happens, there's reasons to not be well with your soul. But for the Christian, he or she can be well in their soul because they're going to wait upon Christ. They're willing to endure suffering. And anything they can't handle, the first thing they do is to be under the altar and they pray. And they seek and they knock and they trust. So when you go back to your community groups, I just want you guys to do this uh, simply. Um, for each of those things, um, maybe share about one thing that you would like to grow in. But not just to grow in as in, okay, here's the right answer to the question of the day, but to grow in the sense that, you know what, I really want to be stretched in this. And community group, please help me in this area of my life. I want to grow to pray as something I do and depend on. I want to grow to be willing to endure suffering. And that begins really with a non-complaining heart and God shaping you so that you're less anxious about all the things you can't control. I want to grow to be patient and be willing to wait and not have everything happen in my timeline, but to trust in your timeline. Pick one of those three things as what you'll share about. And then just pray for each other and help each other through it. Okay. So we go ahead and pray. And then um, I'm thinking there's a response song. And then please just go ahead and, and um, in your community groups share about one of those three things that you want to work on and help each other. Father, we pray out to you right now, Lord, um, asking you, Father, to deliver in your perfect timing and way everything that is right and that is good and that's just in your plan. Father, we want to. Walk 
with so many generations of Christians that have come before us that have put their hope in Jesus, whether through peace or through tribulation, whether through suffering or whether through blessing, God, help us to walk with our hope in Christ. Help us, God, to walk looking towards your promises for your people, looking towards your justice for your people, looking towards your faithfulness being put on display so that we can be patient and wait because we put our hopes in you. We pray, Father, as we sing right now, that we respond to you, Lord, that these words would reflect the desires of our hearts, that the melodies that comes out of our lungs and our vocal cords would be ones that express our sheer and complete dependence upon you. And we pray, Lord, that when we go into our community groups, that you would help us to, to get down to the ground and to talk about something that we want to grow in so that we can find ourselves near you and with each other. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. Thank you, Father, that not only is your word something that brings hope to the people 2,000 years ago, but Lord, to every generation of the church, of followers of Jesus, of those who have trusted in your word and desire to live out your witness. We pray, Father, that you would just meet us here and that you would continue to encourage us as we go. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.